0: play went forward. Pauline fled, and Margaret died, or lived in process of death. Hugh went up and down to the city. Adela went about the hill. Wentworth, now possessed by his consciousness of her and demanding her presence and consent as its only fulfillment, went about his own affairs. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. The maxim applies to many stones of stumbling, and especially To all those of which the nature is the demand for a presence, instead of the assent to an absence, the imposition of the self upon complacency. Wentworth made his spiritual voice hoarse in issuing orders to complacency, and stubbed his toes more angrily every day against the immovable stone. Once or twice he met Adela once at Mrs. Perry's, where they had no chance to speak. They smiled at each other, an odd smile, the faint hint of greed springing from the invisible nature of greed was in it on both sides. Their greed smiled. Again, he ran into her one evening at the post office with Hugh, and Hugh's smile charged theirs with hostility. It ordered and subdued Adela's. It blocked and repulsed Wentworth's. It forced on him the fact that he was not only unsuccessful, but old. He contended against both youth and a rival. He said, how's the play going?
1: I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
0: All right, welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of Literature at Emanuel College and Clueless Father of Three. And joining me today, we have Annika Smith. How are you doing, Annika? Doing great, Chris. Thanks. Great. And we have Serena Higgins.
1: Hey, very glad to be here. Thank you.
0: And we have Sophie Burkhart.
2: Hello. So excited to jump back in.
0: I am excited to have all of you. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves briefly, if you don't mind. Let's start with Annika.
3: I am an Inklings lover and
1: just an amateur, unlike some of y'all, but very glad to be back. And Serena? I suppose my primary role right now is a faculty member at Signum University, where I teach courses in Inklings and Fantasy, Arthuriana, and so forth. Right now, we're doing a great little class on C.S. Lewis's Ransom
0: Cycle. That's awesome. And Sophie?
2: I love reading all of these authors. And sometimes I mess around with a podcast Beneath the Willow Tree and talk about philosophy and theology and all this fun stuff.
0: Listeners, her podcast is called Beneath the Willow Tree. It's quite good. I encourage you all to go check it out. And I encourage you to check out Serena Higgins' work as well on Charles Williams. And Serena, you do a blog, correct? That's right.
1: That's called The Oddest Inkling, which Mm -hmm. may or may not be an understatement.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the project you were just telling us about with the uh, audiobooks?
1: Sure. I'm very glad to have a guest post up right now at The Oddest Inkling by John Mabry, who is my publisher over at Apocryphile Press. And he has gotten the rights to the audiobooks for all seven of Charles Williams' novels. And he has commissioned scholars to write new introductions. To these books. And he also has a British voice actor recording each of them. So do check these out. They're on Audible. Yes. You can get them through Amazon. I know it's really exciting. And I'm supposed to be working this week on the introduction to The Greater Trumps, which I'm excited about.
0: Oh, very fun. I'm trying to figure out which Charles Williams novel to do after we do this one next season.
3: The Platonists really need The Place of the Lion. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: that's a beautiful novel. Yeah. I think it might stand alone the best of all of his. Hmm. And ways it's an easier one to talk about comparatively speaking
0: yeah and if we are focusing on inklings especially in general place of the lion is a good one to do because it's the way that charles williams and cs lewis became acquainted Ascended to Hell is among the best of Charles Williams' novels, so-called spiritual thrillers in which everyday decisions made by modern people hold profound moral and metaphysical meaning. The novel takes place in the fictional town of Battle Hill, where events as seemingly mundane as the rehearsal of a play or an old historian's jealousy are as supernatural and significant as the posthumous journey of a suicide or a girl's flight from her own image when she meets herself walking down the street. Battle Hill contains in itself both heaven, the true city, and hell. For these, more than afterlife destinations are tendencies in the heart of every person that may be fostered or destroyed. We have all, it turns out, descended to hell. But is it possible to descend there in order to rescue others from it? As the book goes on, it becomes increasingly clear that the only true path out of hell lies through it when we carry each other's burdens. We've recorded already on chapters 1 through 4. We're starting out with chapter 5. Can anybody give me a synopsis of the story so far up until chapter 5?
1: it's a little tough because we have the interwoven stories, right? And you did mention them in that introduction, which by the way, was an awesome intro. You said things there that I'd never noticed before. So yay. Thank you. Um, Well, we have this great poet whose play in verse is under rehearsal. We have this young woman who was haunted by a doppelganger, has been haunted by a doppelganger and we'll see what comes of that soon. And then we have this triangle of the elderly historian with a crush on this young actress, Adela. And she's starting to go out with this magnificent young man named Hugh. So there's all these jealousies and rivalries, but really what's going on inside the character's souls is far more important, right? Oh, and then we have Pauline's grandmother who is essentially on her deathbed and is sort of facing that with courage and fortitude.
0: Yeah, good, good. The fourth chapter, I'm still sort of scratching my head about that. And Serena, you made some really interesting points about kind of the occultic nature of part of this vision that the grandmother has. This vision of death where she's sort of seeing things in four dimensions, you know, and and begins to understand how all of these elements are intermingled.
1: Yeah, her description of seeing this mountain and these characters on it and all their significance is really similar to visions that people wrote down when they were practicing visualization techniques in the Order of the Golden Dawn and other occult groups like visions that William Butler Yeats or some of his friends wrote down. So I do think that Williams is expressing that. And then I think in this chapter five, we get the opposite of it, right? I think we get the dark version of that visualization technique.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think the one other thing that we should say is that there's so many pieces to this and they all come together. Pauline Anstruther, who is the sort of the main character, sort of has an ancestor. John Struther, who's mentioned in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh, and also, there's a there's a woman who seems like a well-meaning very busy woman named Lily Samuel who really just lives for other people and we all know that the Inkling's loved people who lived for other people. So <laughs> Lily is... Uh, Especially
1: women cough.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Lily Samuel will offer to help people in a way that is different than the way that other people are helping each other, and, and we'll, go, we'll get into that. So, chapter five, Return to Eden. I'll just start with the beginning of a synopsis, and you all feel free to add and things as, uh, as they occur. We have Lawrence Wentworth, frustrated historian who has been roped into helping out with the play a little bit, and who is upset that a girl that he liked, a young girl named Adela, seems to be falling for a a young man, Hugh. Then he discovers that his scholarly rival in the field of history, Aston Moffat, has been knighted, and that sort of kicks off the chain of events that occur here in Return to Eden. What did I leave out? What should be said next?
1: In your summary at the top of the show, you mentioned that other plot thread Ha ha. The man who apparently committed suicide. And this chapter starts out with him and Wentworth standing in exactly the same physical location at the same point, but in two different moments in time and one in this life and one in the afterlife. And Margaret, the older lady who is dying, sees this in her vision. I don't remember whether his... Proximity to the suicide works out anymore in this particular chapter. I don't think it does, but it's really important that they both have this descent of a rope right? The one man um, hanged himself and then Wentworth has this recurring dream that he's climbing down and down a rope. And then in his waking life, he's making one tiny decision after another that are his handholds lower and lower down the rope into hell, apparently.
3: And even as he gives himself up to his anger over the knighthood, um, he starts to feel the choking as he swells with rage, right? Almost like the corpse struggling and yes, it's nice and uh, graphic.
0: All of these characters, it's it's so so skillfully woven together, the way all of these characters have something to do with all of the other characters. They, there's not just like one main character who all the characters have something to do. The suicide definitely, and, and his rope has, has something to do with Wentworth's recurring dream that he is climbing down a rope into the darkness and the rope is the color of moonlight. And there's um,
1: also the patter patter of footsteps through this chapter, which... It turns out are Lily Semele's um, footsteps and that she is offering something which Wentworth eventually takes advantage of in this chapter, although that's that's very subtly stated.
0: Yeah, it's interesting with her, right? To all the other characters, she is offering something out loud and explicitly. She doesn't do that with Wentworth. He just finds himself... I'm probably getting ahead of myself a, a bit. Yeah, there's no explicit interaction with Lily Samil where she makes an out loud offer and he accepts. So first up to be read, we have the passage where he finds out that Aston Moffat, his old rival, has been knighted.
2: In the middle, he saw a headline, birthday honors, and a smaller headline, knighthood for historian. His heart deserted him. His puppet eyes stared. They found the item by the name in black type for their convenience, Aston Moffat. There was presented to him at once and clearly an opportunity for joy, casual, accidental joy, but joy. If he could not manage joy, at least he might have managed the intention of joy, or, if that also were too much, an effort towards the intention of joy. The infinity of grace could have been contented and invoked by a mere mental refusal of anything but such an effort. He knew his duty. He was no fool. He knew that the fantastic recognition would please and amuse the innocent soul of Sir Aston, not so much for himself as in some unselfish way for the honor of history. Such honors meant nothing, but they were part of the absurd dance of the world and to be enjoyed as such. Wentworth knew he could share that pleasure. He could enjoy, at least he could refuse not to enjoy. He could refuse and reject damnation. With a perfectly clear, if instantaneous, knowledge of what he did, he rejected joy instead. He instantaneously preferred anger, and at once it came. He invoked envy, and it obliged him. He crushed the paper in a rage, then he tore it open and looked again and again. There it still was. He knew that his rival had not only succeeded, but succeeded at his own expense. What chance was there of another historical knighthood for years? To that moment, he had never thought of such a thing. The possibility had been created and withdrawn simultaneously, leaving the present fact to Mock him. The other possibility of joy in that present fact receded as fast. He had determined then and forever, forever, forever that he would hate the fact, and therefore facts. He walked, unknowing, to the window and stared out. He loomed behind the glass, a heavy bulk of monstrous greed. His hate so swelled that he felt it choking his throat, and by a swift act transferred it. He felt his rival choking and staggering. He hoped and willed it. He stared passionately into death and saw before him a body twisting at the end of a rope. Sir Aston Moffat. Sir Aston Moffat. He stared at the faint ghost of the dead man's death in that half-haunted house and did not see it. The dead man walked on his own hill, but that hill was not to be Whitworth's. Whitworth preferred another death. He was offered it. As he stood there, imagining death close to the world of the first death, refusing all joy of facts and having for long refused all unselfish agony of facts, he heard at last the footsteps for which he had listened.
0: So creepy. And we're just at the tip of the uh, iceberg of creepiness. Here again you have this moment and we're so used to these kinds of moments having covered you know so many of the Inklings works where you have the opportunity for joy or to take joy in something that is not your immediate goal and the refusal of that joy or the acceptance of that joy makes all the difference. Anyone else want to say anything?
3: The the joy and the delight is obviously so the clarion call ringing through this but the his failure as a scholar leader to this moment as well. And that little note in the beginning, he was doubly open to its reproach in in rejecting justice in his scholarship where the ignoring of others began to limit color and falsify his work. He's starting to exclude others and reject. He's already rejecting facts. He's already rejecting engaging with points of view and arguments uh, on history, which is itself a presentation of facts, right? That his hatred drives him to hate the fact and therefore facts is just so perfect and haunting. The link between joy and delight in the thingness of things is very Chestertonian, right? It's, so perfect because it's so necessary to draw us outside of ourselves and necessary for good scholarship, not just for the ability to receive joy, but also to be a neutral, objective and effective thinker and writer. I find this really rich in the the life of the mind and the life of the imagination and how both are very involved in the life of the soul.
1: Wow. That's well said. Yeah. Isn't it heartbreaking that he damns himself essentially for nothing? He hadn't ever thought of, oh, one can get knighted for being a great historian. It had never once crossed his mind. But the minute he sees someone else getting it, he wants it. And he's unwilling to rejoice in the fact that his field has been honored in a way that he didn't even hear about before. I find that heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. How completely human, though. This is this is absolutely a part of us from the time we are small children, because... <laughs> I see it in my kids, you know, they don't have any conception that someone can be happy in a particular way. And then they see somebody else has it and they want that thing, you know, and and obviously we laugh at it when we see it in kids, but it's the way we all definitely can be. You know, the great thing about kids is they're so unselfconscious about it and they don't hide it, but we all do.
3: It's interesting in my, as I'm reading this here, my notes have Sir Aston and his innocent soul and his unselfish delight. And the absurd dance it it feels actually very childlike but in the in the self forgetfulness of humility and delight and it also seems like the the verbs are all active right in that you have to refuse the natural good right? The, it's casual and accidental joy. It's almost, it's there bubbling up, like pressing in, whispering right there. Whereas the rejection is a command. He, he instantaneously preferred anger and it came. He invoked envy and it obliged, right? Like he is the one commanding and controlling the the vicious natures and the graces that are offered are just cascading, like right there, ready to get him. And he has to actively reject them, which is interesting. They seem more natural here, which I did not expect.
1: Yeah, and there's a parallel between the previous paragraph when it says he could have invoked the infinity of grace and yet he chooses to invoke envy instead so it's as if we have these dark and these light gods waiting right and he can choose which one to invoke and he invokes that dark god and lo and behold it comes in a form pretty soon but i don't want to get us ahead
0: there's a grace that's given people for actual circumstances Right. Um, And when we reject actual circumstances, we reject that grace where we choose to live in a world of illusion instead of in a world of facts.
3: That's Lewis's point on there's anxiety about the future because God hasn't given you grace to have the patience or have whatever you need to meet that fate. Whereas it's the present we meet and encounter grace and receive it.
0: having rejected fact, like the fact that Aston Moffat has been knighted, and the fact he also rejects the fact that um, Adela prefers young Hugh Prescott to an aged historian, and suddenly he hears the sound of footsteps and sees someone out there who looks like Adela. It was Adela, yet it was not. It was her height and had her movement. The likeness appeased him, yet he did not understand the faint unlikeness. For a moment he thought it was someone else, a woman of the hill, someone he had seen, whose name he did not remember. He was up to her now, and he knew it could not be Adela, for even Adela had never been so like Adela as this. That truth which is the vision of romantic love, in which the beloved becomes supremely her own adorable and eternal self, the glory and splendor of her own existence, and her own existence no longer felt or thought as hers, but of and from another, that was aped for him. Then the thing could not astonish him, nor could it be adored. The false Adela comes, the Adela that can be, because she lacks any kind of vitality in in herself or from God. She's more his own, but by being more his own, less another person.
1: That paragraph is almost an exact summary of William's book, The Outline of Romantic Theology. <sighs> so, what's being aped here? For Wentworth is what Williams believed was the core of Christian theology. Do you want me to go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it was mid-1920s that Williams was working on this book, Outlines of Romantic Theology, and it postulates that each romantic couple's relationship follows the stages of Christ's earthly life and that every couple acts out in their romantic relationship almost like another incarnation. So it's the, it's an extreme application of the via affirmativa, right? Or like the way of saying created things are a path to God. And at the core of that book is the idea that romantic love lets us see the beloved as supremely her or his own adorable and eternal self, the glory and splendor of that person's own existence. So it's like Williams is simultaneously giving us that, but taking it away because since Wentworth has rejected facts and he's rejected the uncomfortable and awkward otherness, of people what he gets is not a vision of romantic theology he gets a, f- a fake a copy right a cheap knockoff of what williams thought was this glorious beatrician truth
0: yeah yeah and not only is it a, you know, is it a hollow parody, but it's a hollow parody that of course leads him, leads to his damnation, right? Uh, with, with, with lots of help from him.
1: Yeah. You know? Whereas the Beatrician vision is exactly supposed to be a guide to salvation, right?
2: Sort of tying back to the, the previous passage, when he talks about having refused all unselfish agony effects. I feel like agony is such, such a big word because to accept reality, And also to accept joy, you have to also face agony and be open to suffering and pain. And that comes with the sort of unselfishness. And so because he chooses to reject any sort of pain of facing the facts that that Bella doesn't love him and, and those sorts of things. Then he ends up just going deeper and deeper into himself where I guess agony doesn't exist, but joy doesn't exist either. And it just becomes a phantom nothingness.
3: Right. Love involves risk. There's something about that otherness. That's also the risk of rejection, the risk of discomfort and the risk of pain, which is interesting mirrored with Pauline who chooses to face the risk of her doppelganger before there's any relief in sight. But she knows if she could, be shut in right but that's discussed earlier as an option that she could just stay in her house and never leave and she knows that won't solve her problem she has to risk and then deal with the agony somehow which we'll get to but I love that the openness to suffering is also its own sort of agony and and risk
1: oh. you see that even in little details like further down this page when this figure laughs the laugh was a little like adela's only better and why better because it doesn't have adela's little bit of a small condescension in other words it has nothing that could make wentworth uncomfortable so it's only better in a sense of buttering him up 100 percent.
0: yeah he he said you waved and she or didn't you wave to me he said under her eyes i didn't think you'd be any use to me she laughed The the laugh was a little like adela's only better fuller more amused adela hardly ever laughed as if she were really amused she always had a small condescension he Said, how could I know? You don't think about yourself enough, she said. The words were <laughs> tender. <laughs> the words were tender and grateful to him, and he knew they were true. He had never thought enough about himself. He had wanted to be kind. He had wanted to be kind to Adela. It was Adela's obstinate folly which now outraged him. He had wanted to give himself to Adela out of kindness. He was greatly relieved by this woman's words, almost as much as if he had given himself. He went on giving. He said, If I thought more of myself, you wouldn't have much difficulty in finding it, she answered let's walk. You don't think about yourself enough, kind of a red flag in a world haunted by Lily Samuel.
1: Why wouldn't this woman want me? I'm giving her the gift of my (laughs) wonderful self. You know What woman could possibly reject that? And I'm so unselfish. I never think of myself.
0: And, And it is an aping, right? Because when two people are unselfishly loving each other, there is a grace present in that, right? That neither one really deserves. But the point isn't to think like how awesome I am to give you this generous gift of me right that's for you to think of the other person
2: since he realizes that there's a problem because the real Adela doesn't love him but he instead of realizing that maybe it's just not meant to be or realizing his own faults he shifts the blame on others and just pushes it all on them and it's just so that he can sink deeper and deeper into loving himself and thinking he's the best and also I just thought it was funny thinking about himself enough just made me think of mrs bennett from pride and prejudice and how nobody thinks about her poor nerves uh, so I just maybe she's also descending into hell I'm not sure
0: yeah. Oh,
1: that's harsh, but good.
0: I blame my inklings full education in my literature classes at college for feeling like this spidey sense-like warning whenever I hear like, Preachers at church or whatever else saying, "Well, you have to learn to love yourself before you can love other people," and and things like that always just sets me off because <laughs> I've read too much Charles Williams and Lewis to ever sort of agree with that idea.
3: One more quick thing to note is the the Adela that exists here that exists only for Wentworth. Part of the maybe the symptom of shutting himself out of or shutting the city away from him, right? The rejection of facts, the rejection of people who exist apart from him like this adela she she can't belong to Hugh. um this is the real one right adela in her real self by no means the self that went with Hugh. no but the true the true adela who was a part and his for that was the difficulty all the while that she was truly his and wouldn't be but if he thought more of her truly being and not of her being untruly away, on whatever way, making every other person only what they exist for you. That's the death. And then at the end, when it becomes um, up to the Adela, he kept in himself as she's talking and walking walked by his side and she was taking him and talking in taking also the word play the taking in as the talking continues and they walk further on further down the sort of reap a cheap moment of (laughs) come along farther in farther on farther in down under down under come along it's good for man to be alone that's just the pit of hell right there
1: comment there you know we like to, to joke and complain about how difficult Williams's syntax is and how difficult his writing style are and that's true but on this read-through I was noticing He's far more in control of it than I first gave him credit for. He really does have these rhetorical registers and he really does use them for characterological purposes. So the previous chapter was really hard to follow because it's the spiritual vision, right? It's a spiritual ecstasy of a dying woman, which presumably none of us have had because we wouldn't have lived to write it down afterwards. And then here we have something similar, but opposite, and the passage you read, Annika, you read it almost too well, because I find that it really slips and slides and starts falling apart. And it's so jangly and in timing and like bad poetry. Hugh could be untrue and she true, then he would know themselves too, true and two on the way he was going. It's like, it's almost impossible to read and to understand. And on this time around, I was like, oh, that's, that's on purpose. Williams is slipping into a stream of consciousness or he's, he's crafting a stream of consciousness narrative as Wentworth's consciousness is breaking down. Yes. And Wentworth no longer has any desire to communicate with an other. And so we can't even really put together sentences that communicate very clearly with us.
0: Yeah. I I went through uh, Lewis's letters and he writes to congratulate Williams on his book. And he's like, this seems to avoid a lot of the self-indulgence. A lot of the self-indulgence you sometimes slip into Occasionally, Lewis is like, occasionally it gets a little more stream of consciousness than I like, but I get why you're doing that, right? Um, so, so he comments on that as well. And he, he's like, you know, it, it, it works, it works still not my preferred thing but it's it's good and and yeah i think your point about the contrast between the language in the vision of death which is a different kind of hard it's like you're climbing up a mountain versus versus this so stream of consciousness and it's that was good
1: brought home to me when we, when i finished this chapter when we just get nice plain descriptive statements again pauline sat back in her chair i was like ah yeah. We get concrete physical objects, we get a subject and then a verb. This is yeah. lovely. And I realized that's not an accident.
0: Yeah, there's the it was good for him to be here and great fun. One day he would laugh, but laughter would be tiring here under trees and leaves, leaves, leaves and eaves, eaves and eaves, eves E V E S, a word with two meanings. And again, a word with two meanings, Eaves and Eaves, capital E V E S. Many eves to many atoms. One eve to one atom. One eve to each. One eve to all. Eve. Dot dot dot. Weird. Like just associative wordplay. I I think maybe I'm making this up in my mind, but I think Lewis compared it to uh, Gertrude Stein. But uh, maybe maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know
1: if I can see that. Maybe it's
0: I'm imagining that, but- Well, uh, I
1: wouldn't put it past Lewis, all these yeah. modernists sound the same. I know, I know.
0: <laughs> One of the interesting things to me about this is the doppelganger here of Adela is used differently from Pauline's doppelganger, right? In Pauline's doppelganger, we will come to learn increasingly is an opportunity for her to rely on other people, even though it's an image of herself right? But this is a false image of someone else and it's being used to isolate Wentworth further and it's an it's a kind of agent of of damnation as opposed to an agent of salvation even though it is an image of another right but it's his version of that other you know it's super trippy.
1: good that we get those two pairs and we get well we'll have to talk about this in the next chapter but we get these two pairs of an older man and a younger woman modeling different ways that that relationship can go an incredibly unhealthy twisted one and then one that's that's meant to be painted as a more healthy sort of a mentorship kind of
0: interaction on page 84 we have adela in quotation marks taking him up the hill to her house and you have a door swinging behind him as we did in the chemist shop in the previous williams book we did where that's the moment of your soul is lost now at least for the time being right so a wooden door swings before and behind him and then he's in this bizarre sort of anti-Eden, right? It's like Eden working backwards. There's mist everywhere. Eve is sort of melting back into Adam, but it's also, of course, not Eve, but Lilith. All kinds of play with uncreating the way things were originally said to be created. So yeah, what, what do you all have to say about the rest of this chapter?
1: Yeah, it's all reverse birth imagery because we have a man, a male, attempting to give birth, but what he wants to give birth to is this woman that would be a fit companion for him. So he wants to be a new Adam, and yet it's all like a oozy absorption of things into himself instead of a healthy giving birth to a new life. There's this creepy passage when he's thinking about the insides of his own body, tubes and pipes and paths and ropes coiled inside of his own body, and yet he is in this very womb-like space here where it's all dark and wet and warm and formless so it's yet another way of people saying I will be like God because God can bring forth new people and so he's determined to give birth to an Adela the way that he wants her of course he wouldn't have put it like that to himself but that's the dream that I think somehow Lily samil has put into his mind even though like you said Chris they haven't had an explicit conversation about it but I think somehow she's planted the seeds of the idea or They've been
0: growing in his mind for a while. Yeah. She whose origin is with man's kindred to him as he to his beasts alien from him as he from his beasts to whom a name was given in a myth Lilith for a name and Eden for a myth. And she is stirring more certain than name or myth who in one of her shapes went hurrying about the refuge of that hill of skulls and pattered and chattered on the hill hurrying hurrying for fear of time growing together and squeezing her out, out of the interstices of time where she lived, locust in the rock, time growing together into one and squeezing her out, squeezing her down out of the pressure of the universal present, down into depth, down into the opposite of that end, down into the ever and ever of the void. Yeah. Running, I mean, it's so dreamlike and so bizarre in the myth of Lilith. And I know I know Sophie has just done a podcast on George McDonald's Lilith. Sophie, can you explain who the original Lilith is?
2: From what I've read, it looks like throughout Hebrew myth, it evolved a little bit. Originally, she was just sort of a she-demon, but then eventually you have this notion that she was Adam's first wife, and then she rebelled against him and against God. And then from then on, she sort of poses this threat to children specifically and to women who are pregnant so she's a fiend
0: (laughs) yeah and like it's it's weird to me right because especially having grown up in the 90s right i I think of lilith as being the one who was her own woman right who who did not need adam who was not
3: reference yeah no i it's hard to be of a certain age and not think sarah mclaughlin so
0: yeah But yeah, Lilith as being someone who's created separately from Adam and who is punished and we have Eve taken from Adam's rib and all of this. But what's enacted here is not Lilith separate from Adam at all. It's Lilith as essentially not even really a separate thing at all. It's a dimension of human consciousness that, that's rejected that which is separate.
3: It's Lilith as as the fantasy though, right? And, and the fantasy that itself is destructive of life of women and children. And also growing up in the 90s, when I think of sexual revolution and the fallout, right? And the cost of thinking you can have people the way you want them, when you want them, and the demons who are very against- Women and children in life. I think that's appropriate that it would be destructive of all absorbing the man until he himself is also destroyed instead of bringing forth life as he should.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that connect, especially like the anti right, because this is a fruitless marriage. This is not a marriage that produces anyone outside the self or that's with anyone outside the self. It's just interesting that Lilith is the figure who's like the consummate independent mate of adam in hebrew myth but here she is consummately dependent and is like confused with eve right becomes his rib in a way right in 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 this right like williams is just playing with all of this stuff in, in interesting and surprising ways All right, any anything else about that incredibly creepy chapter that you all want to say before we get on to a slightly more hopeful chapter? Oh, uh
3: just one eighty-eight and eighty-nine, when he's talking about the city, how it the city offends him and things that belong to the city, and he talks about circulars and beggars, so noise and other people, no people but his, no loves but his, right? And that this is, again, he comes back to canvassers, no canvassers, no beggars, no lovers. And the linking of beggars and lovers, that's twice it's begging and loving are joined up for him. And the the rejection of those who make demands on him, whether they be those who want his money or those who he could love, right? He could have loved earlier perhaps he would not have been so far gone right adela uh, or someone and instead he he rejects that because that is beckoning to the city that is beckoning to heaven the loving and the begging just fascinate me
0: yeah absolutely yeah just rejection increasingly not only of agony but of inconvenience right Mm -hmm. by wentworth summarize chapter six or should we just start going through and reading passages and talking about it it's
1: williams rendering into fiction what he tried to write i think less effectively in nonfiction essays and also in poetry and also in letters it's his idea that we can carry the mental emotional psychological and spiritual burdens of other people And he puts this into action in a story in what I think is the most effective way he ever wrote it. So in short, Peter Stanhope can tell that there's something wrong with Pauline, that she's carrying some terrible worry, some awful fear. He notices she's always looking over her shoulder and he offers to carry it for her. And so she tells him about the doppelganger, first person she has ever tried telling in what, two decades um, since she was mocked as a child. And he goes through this just astonishing explanation of what he's about to do. And the most astonishing thing about it is that he thinks it's perfectly ordinary and he takes her fear for her, and she can no longer be afraid. And she walks home without fear for the first time, and then somehow thinks of herself as kind of sworn to a new type of obedience under Stanhope's mastery, hopes that she can help other people in the same way in the future.
0: How's that? That's pretty dang good. Nicely done. So, kittens, though. How could I
1: skip kittens?
0: Well, don't worry. We'll get to the kittens. Get to the kittens. Uh, The context in which this is happening is uh, Mrs. Perry and Adela are at odds about the correct way to read the great Peter Stanhope's poetry. Mrs. Perry wants it read apparently ridiculously slowly, while Adela wants to insert her personality into it all over the place, have like these long pauses, right, before she moves on. Peter Stanhope and Pauline are kind of talking about this and laughing about this, and that's when this conversation um, sort of occurs around page uh, 95. You talk as if life were good, she said. It's either good or evil, he answered. And you can't decide that by counting incidents on your fingers. The decision is of another kind. But don't let's be abstract. Will you tell me what it is that bothers you? She said, it sounds too silly. Stanhope paused and in the silence there came to them Mrs. Perry's voice carefully enunciating a grand ducal speech to Hugh Prescott. The measured syllables fell in globed detachment at their feet, and Stanhope waved a hand outwards. Well, he said, if you think it sounds sillier than that, God is good. If I hadn't been here, they might have done the tempest. Consider, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve and Like this, insubstantial pageant, faded. Oh, certainly, God is good. So what about telling me? I have a trick, she said steadily, of meeting an exact likeness of myself in the street. As if she hated herself for saying it, she turned sharply on him. There, she exclaimed, now you know, you know exactly, and what will you say? Her eyes burned at him. He received their fury undisturbed, saying, you mean exactly that, and she nodded, well, he went on mildly. It's not unknown. Goethe met himself once, on the road to Weimar, I think. But he didn't make it a habit. How long has this been happening? All my life, she answered, at intervals, long intervals, I know, months and years sometimes, only it's quicker now. Oh, it's insane. No one could believe it, and yet it's there. It's your absolute likeness, he asked. It's me, she repeated. It comes from a long way off, and it comes up towards me, and I'm terrified, terrified. One day it'll come on and and meet me. It hasn't so far, it's turned away or disappeared, but it won't always, it'll come right up to me, and then I shall go mad or die. Why, he asked quickly, and she answered at once, because I'm afraid, dreadfully afraid. such a contrast here between she, she tries to start to tell Wentworth about this or asks him if he's heard in his career as a historian of anyone meeting themselves. And he's like, well, it seems like something that a narcissist would would do. Stanhope instead just kind of takes it in stride. He actually tells her she's not alone in her tendency to meet her doppelganger that Goethe did too at one point, although he didn't make a habit of it. Using this fact of encountering herself to... Involve someone else in her fear. It's it's just so fascinating how, how Williams is, is playing with this motif.
1: It's fascinating and difficult how Williams weaves this scene in and out with the rehearsals of the play, because many is the time that I or others have wanted to quote just the bits about the exchange. And then like right in the middle of sentences, (laughs) there'll be something about the rehearsal or something else around the characters. And you can't really extract the exchange from its context. But isn't that exactly the point? You can't extract the exchange from its human and complicated and everyday context. But sorry, we haven't gotten to the exchange yet. That's the next sentence. (laughs) We've just gotten to her expression of the fear.
0: he said.
3: That I don't quite understand. You have friends. Haven't you asked one of them to carry your fear? Carry my
0: fear? She said, sitting rigid in her chair so that her arms, which had lain so lightly pressed now into the basketwork and her long firm hands gripped it as if they strangled her own heart.
1: How can anyone else carry my fear? Can anyone else see it and have to meet it?
0: Still, in that public place, leaning back easily, as if they talked of casual things, he said,
1: You're
3: mixing up two things. Think a moment, and you'll see. The meeting it, that's one thing, and we can leave it till you're rid of the other. It's the fear we're talking about. Has no one ever relieved you of that? Haven't you ever asked
1: them to? She said, You haven't understood, of course. I was a fool. Let's forget it. Isn't Mrs. Perry efficient? extremely,
0: he answered.
3: And God redeem her, but nicely. Will you tell me whether you've any notion of what I'm talking about? And if not, will you let me do it for you?
0: She attended reluctantly as if to attend were an unhappy duty she owed him as she had owed others to others and tried to fulfill them. She said politely,
3: do it for me. It can be done, you know, he went on. It's surprisingly simple. And if there's no one else you care to ask, why not use me? I'm here at your disposal, and we could so easily settle it that way. Then you needn't fear it, at least. And then again for the meeting. That might be a very different business if you weren't distressed.
1: But how can I not be afraid? She asked. Hellish nonsense to talk like that. I suppose that's rude, but... It's no more nonsense than your own story.
0: He said.
3: That isn't. Very well, this isn't. We all know what fear and trouble are. Very well. When you leave here, you'll think of yourself that I've taken this particular trouble over instead of you. You'd do as much for me if I needed it or for anyone. And I will give myself to it. I'll think of what comes to you and imagine it and know it and be afraid of it. And then you see you won't
0: she looked at him as if she were beginning to understand that at any rate he thought he was talking about a reality and as she did so something of her feeling for him returned it was after all peter stanhope who was talking to her like this peter stanhope was a great poet were great poets liars no but they might be mistaken yes so might she she said very doubtfully
1: but i don't understand it isn't your you haven't seen it How can you?
0: He indicated the rehearsal before them. Come, he said.
3: If you like that, will you tell me that I must see in order to know? That's not pride. And if it were, it wouldn't matter. Listen, when you go from here, when you're alone, when you think you'll be afraid, let me put myself in your place and be afraid instead of you.
0: He sat up and leaned towards her.
3: It's so easy, he went on easy for both of us. It needs only the act. For what can be simpler than for you to think to yourself that since I am there to be troubled instead of you, therefore you'd needn't be troubled. And what can be easier than for me to carry a little while a burden that isn't mine?
0: about this uh. <laughs>
1: If we don't, we'll end up doing what Peter Stanhope did, which is just read his whole play aloud that's, when someone asked him what it meant. <laughs> that's uh,
0: yeah, that's that's one it's of the nice things podcast. we do here. We yeah. read this
1: novel out loud to you.
0: Yeah, the the doctrine of substituted law really interesting, and he just spells out you, you know the the mechanics of how this works. Like I always, when I do the Odyssey with my students, I always tell them, well, now you know how to open a portal to the underworld, you know, using only some black sheep uh, and and a knife or two and this like similarly like just goes into, de- into detail about this sort of you know you concentrate on someone else's fear and use your imagination right in a spiritually positive way to take that fear from them and so carefully
1: delineates it apart from the actions right because she she can't she can't understand that he's not saying and then you won't meet it He's just saying and then you won't be afraid and she has such a hard time dividing those two things he has to remind her of it
0: how does this track with the idea of something being dreadfully good because if if something isn't scary it's not dreadful but this is a dreadful good for her isn't it i i mean like that's that's there should be a fear when something is really deeply good
3: yes but he also said earlier that it's the the good can be dreadful but the dreadfulness is not necessarily good right that's the um the one describing the other and not the absolute equality of both and so the the giving up of her fear is not losing the good but it's having what if the fear was so that she could be open to this and receive and learn grace and then offer Grace again herself of in the same way of comfort with the same comfort with with which you've been comforted.
0: Yeah, I'll buy that. It's it's well said.
3: You don't have
1: to. I'm I'm just guessing here.
0: No. Yeah. No. I think it's a I think it's a good point.
1: I've always taken that in the light of Aslan being not safe but good, or in the light of the beginning of paralandra when the C.S. Lewis narrator character comes into contact with good. And then finds to his horror that he doesn't like good as much as he thought he did. So it's more like the terror of good is that it reveals that we aren't. And that if we don't love being in its company, it's because we aren't fit company for it. Might that be part of what's going on here? It's an idea that is a terrible good, right? And that she has discomfort with at first.
0: Yeah, the the fear seems to correspond to some infirm either sinful or mortal thing that is a part of us and it's transcending the negative aspects of that the aspects that have to do with sin perhaps is is something that we lean on each other in order to do right that we that we carry each other's burdens to help with and it doesn't reduce the glory of the thing that is feared maybe um but does um render it fearful in the right way um instead of in a way that is yeah i don't know i don't know or 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 makes makes it so that we are able better to approach it right like in the great divorce or something like that where you have to lean on the other you know the, the ghosts have to lean on the spirits to to get further into the mountains yeah i don't know i'm i i need to still turn that in my mind has anyone tried this has anyone tried to take on someone else's fear or uh or emotional burden of some kind non-physical burden and has it worked
1: do you mean has anyone or have any of us here present this evening
0: if any of you have done it then uh i'd, I'd love to hear about it
1: but I mean, i've tried to do it in a cheating way which is without the contract that Williams says is so necessary. He says the two people have to contract together that the one gives it up and the other takes it. I've just done it in the sense of prayer. Yeah. If I could suffer this person's pain instead of them, I'd be willing to. And I don't think that's at all what Williams is, is suggesting here.
3: So interesting. Why is the contract necessary? Because uh, similarly, the, the, the prayer, I mean, that seems much more orthodox theologically, right? Like that we are to bear one another and and even in the a theology of suffering that says that offers up the suffering and says, in my pain, I, I pray for so- and so and this other thing they're going through or uh, my headache reminds me to pray for my sister with a headache or, or whoever it is in the similar suffering um, that gives us understanding to pray for that suffering and to offer our own up. But why why is the contract a necessary uh, element in his formulation?
1: And furthermore, is he consistent with that? Because we're going to see an exchange later in this novel when one of the characters knows nothing of it, yeah. But as to why is the contract necessary, I think he puts so much weight on free will that the person who's going to receive the benefit has to to have the right of refusal, which is what Wentworth does over and over again, right? Wentworth refused to either carry or to give the burden. And I think the way that this chapter is focused on Pauline's giving it up, I think shows that that might even be the harder role than taking it on, because the person who takes it on presumably kind of passes it on to Christ in the manner of speaking, or at least that's one formulation, although Stanhope says you needn't bring Christ into it. But I think it might be harder to give up the burden because that involves saying I'm not enough. I'm not sufficient on my own. But the other reason is that it's a magical operation. It's a, it's a magical mechanistic operation that it's it's more like he's tapping into an unknown natural power, that this is just the way things work, than practicing a spiritual discipline, at least that's my interpretation. I know a lot of people disagree with me
0: on that yeah it's so it's so interesting it's so it's unorthodox in the sense that it's um very abnormal to say to someone like agree with me that i'm going to be afraid instead of you and because i'm taking on that fear voluntarily it is not going to hurt me in the same way that it that it hurts you yeah yeah it's 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 very it's very odd and other than bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ right there's uh there's there's not too much in scripture that warrants it right there's also not too much in scripture that like is necessarily against this right and it seems consonant with the general tenor of like follow me as I follow Christ, you know, Serena is kind of like, I don't think so. So yeah, what, 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 what do you think of this, Serena? What's, what's,
1: uh, uh... well, first, I gather that Sophie has some thoughts along those lines that I would love to hear. And then we can, we can bring in more Williams and more scripture (laughs) to bear on it.
2: So my thoughts aren't super formulated, because I I feel like I just keep mulling over this again and again, I'm like something just feels wrong about it. I'm trying to (laughs) read back over back over my notes. I think kind of sooner what you were saying of like it, it being this sort of natural power that ends up taking God out of the equation as if humans have this ability to do something like that. and I don't know I was even thinking philosophically, is it even possible for you to imagine yourself to have the same quality of fear? would then make the transfer i mean that's a whole nother like (laughs) side thing of is that even possible which is interesting to think about theologically yeah it it feels very human-centered and the whole notion of the omnipotence and i mean i think i i had more thoughts when it gets further into the chapter or maybe the next chapter and and talks about like sort of having this notion of god boiled down to love and power so it just becomes sort of like forces and things moving instead of a personal concrete, if you will, like this is God. So I don't know. This is my first time ever having read this book or Charles Williams. So I'm still thinking through it all.
1: (laughs) No, I think that was very, very well said. I think you're really getting at it. But first, I do want to point out that there are folks who practice this regularly. There still is a companions of the coherence, And there still are disciples of Charles Williams who practice carrying each other's burdens. Um, There's an article that your listeners might want to check out by Andrew Stout called It Can Be Done, you know, which is from what we just read. Um, I think it's in the Journal of Inkling Studies or might be in seven, I forget. So, should check that out. And then, is everyone familiar with C.S. Lewis's experience?
3: Yes, with Joy and her leg and his yeah.
1: leg. Yeah. yeah, that he essentially gave up his calcium and his bones that hers could be rebuilt, right? And he said in a letter, one is tempted to suspect a Charles Williams type substitution. So, I want to be careful you know, pitting my wisdom against <laughs> all these other people. But I agree, Sophie, there's, there's the fact that it's so mechanical and there's the fact that it is so human-centered. And then when I add this to the texts of the rituals that he practiced, which end up saying Christ is within you and your goal is to recognize the Christ spirit within you, then I get nervous. And his mentor, A.E. Waite, who was a Roman Catholic and a Christian occultist, once wrote, I do not know whether there was an historical Jesus, but I know the goal is to recognize the Christ spirit within you. Um, Now, Williams, you know, did move on from those orders later in his life to found the orders, order of the Coherence, And he does write some pretty beautiful Christian theology towards the end of his life, like the descent of the dove. But there are still those aspects that I struggle to reconcile with my own perhaps limited ideas of Christian orthodoxy. Maybe someone coming from more of an Eastern perspective who has a more robust sense of theosis um, or a more deeply sacramental vision than my own might be less uncomfortable with it. But I'm with you right now, Sophie.
0: Yeah. So pints with Jack, guys. If you're listening, come tell us what we're getting wrong.
1: Or Father Damien on uh, and uh, Richard Roland and Amon Hen. We'd love to hear from you on this. Yeah. Yeah. Or
0: if anybody from the companions of the coherence is listening to this, is one of the few podcasts that covers Charles Williams. Uh, <laughs> please, please feel free to set us straight.
3: Quick question, just as a, do we know? Did Lewis agree with Joy? To, did he make a contract with her, or didn't he just start praying that he could take on her pain? I don't yeah. think she would have been
1: like, "Okay, yeah, you take." <laughs> I don't think she would have signed that contract. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. I could see. Well,
1: idea, yeah. Sorry, it sounds there too like Lewis wasn't even intending to do that, right. right? He was just praying and praying and begging that God would take her pain away, and even at one point, basically said like, "If only I could take it for her." He didn't be like, can I get osteoporosis, You know, which is really rare in men of my age, so that my calcium leaches from my bones and somehow her bones are miraculously re- regrown, right? So it wasn't as mechanistic in Lewis's case as what Williams describes.
0: There's also just this fundamental way in which people are connected a lot of times we miss. And I think this is why Charles Williams is so attractive, because they recognize something about human nature that is that often we gloss over because it's like kind of tough to understand and we can't really understand it in a lot of other ways the 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 ways in which we are deeply connected and do sort of to a degree even though like I don't really think I can like by conscious will of imagination take on someone's like know exactly how someone feels in something right and and take it on like that's that's tough Well, Um, you
1: haven't trained your imagination to a high degree of visualization technique through occult practices for a decade, so...
0: Probably. That's that's (laughs) probably it. That's probably it. There's such a recognition here of the fact that that we are all part of one another.
3: Even the the beginning of the the previous chapter, the Wentworth chapter, where it opens with the suicide and it talks about how he, the city, rejected him and he rejected the city, but his his death became a part of the city, right, and had the repercussions of. Being in that spot and making it unholy and haunting, and what eventually happens with Wentworth, and that's the the shadow side to that everything we do affects others. Even Adele's greed, I think affected Wentworth, the, her own greed in her eyes and his greed flashing at hers when they would see each other and and lust for each other and what they offered each other. And here we have the, instead of the, the drawing out, the Stanhope and Pauline vision of being given this other exchange and this other power. Yeah. And
1: whatever we may think of it theologically, it is jolly good fiction. It is yeah. just an amazing, amazing story. And this, this chapter is one
0: of his great achievements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, we will leave the rest of this chapter until the next Inkling's Variety Hour. Before we go, though, I'd like to ask you a quick, goofy question. What are your favorite examples of doppelgangers, the double self in fiction?
1: Doctor Who! it's the matt smith doctor and it's it's a multi-episode story and then aspects of this of it keep coming back and back again there's there's some scientists who figured out how to make their own gangers they can send out to work while they put themselves into a machine that like puts their consciousness into it but of course all kinds of hijinks ensue when we get mixed up which one is the real one and the doctor makes it they can't tell which one is the real him in order to test how they treat them and it's just horrific and creepy and there's a duplicated baby and it's it's just horrible and amazing. I forgot all about that whole plot line. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, nightmares. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, mine would have to be something a little more pedestrian, but Matt Smith reminds me of the character anyways, uh, Lord Pierre Whimsey story involving a, a murder and a guy who meets his doppelganger, but it's like a, a twin. They actually, they'd been separated at birth, but they have they have like a birthmark or something that mirrors and the one commits these murders and the other gets charged for it. And it's it's really fun how he figures it out, seeing a reflection in a, wow. a barber shop or something. Which, is that it,
1: one of the novels? or
3: is that one of the short stories? I, mean, I think it's one of the short stories. Yeah. Yeah, all, mm-hmm.
2: cool. I literally couldn't think of any doppelganger things that I've seen. I mean, I thought of multiplicity, but that's just a, just cloning himself, and they get dumber and dumber, but it's just this...
0: Yeah, those are <laughs> doppelgangers. Sure, we're, we're defining it broadly. I mean, mine's really broad. Mine's from Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. This wizard guy who thinks he's hot stuff tries to bring someone back from the dead, and instead he brings back his... He brings this thing called his shadow that pursues him for most of the rest of the book and the turning point in the book actually is when he turns back around and pursues his shadow. Definite resonances uh, with with this. But, Doesn't that uh,
1: happen in a George MacDonald novel too? That a guy opens a door he shouldn't or goes across a threshold he shouldn't and then his shadow? I think it's yes. in Fantasties, isn't I it? I think
0: that's right. Sophie, do you remember?
1: Yeah, it's definitely Fantasties. <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. thank you for listening if you see your own image walking towards you best practice is to walk back toward it a little friendly advice from the inklings for ah! our
1: we don't know that yet chris <laughs> oh i'm sorry well
0: i, I know just best practice is to find I,
1: friends to, i just
0: mean to, <laughs> from uh wizard of earth wizard of earth and and yeah best practice is to find a friend to carry your fear if if that's a real thing the end <laughs> and thank you
1: all best encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent fan with here, an addict to Tolkien, there, a Charles Williams fan.